Welcome to the Dietitian Connection podcast, a show about nutrition, dietitians, and their success stories. Through our conversations with nutrition leaders, we aim to inspire you, to connect you with like-minded colleagues, to innovate and push you out of your comfort zone, to create robust debate, to encourage lifelong learning, and to empower you to create more impact as a dietitian. I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land where you're listening to this today. I'm recording from the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and I pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging, and I extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Welcome to our Dietitian Connection podcast. I'm Jane Winter from Dietitian Connection, and I'm also an accredited practicing dietitian. Our podcast episode today is supported by Australian Eggs, and the podcast is not and is not intended to be medical advice, which should be tailored to individual circumstances. The podcast is for information only, and we advise you exercise your own judgment before deciding to use any of the information provided. Professional medical advice should be obtained before taking action. So today we're talking vitamin D and about a third of Australians are deficient in what many people know as the sunshine vitamin, vitamin D, over winter, particularly if you're living somewhere like Melbourne, which is a real worry given how important vitamin D is to our overall health and well-being. And today we're joined by Dr. Joanna McMillan to learn about this sort of not-so-typical nutrient and how maybe the egg can help us to meet our vitamin D needs, particularly in the cooler months. As an accredited practicing dietitian, PhD qualified nutrition scientist, a fellow of the Australasian Society of Lifestyle Medicine and graduate of the Australian Institute of Company Directors, along with a career spanning three decades, Joe obviously has the credentials and the experience to earn her place as one of Australia's most sought after and trusted health and wellbeing experts. And she's very well known to our dietetic community. So thanks for joining us and welcome back to our Dietitian Connection podcast, Joe. Thanks, Jane. It's always a pleasure. <laughs> Very nice to talk to you. So vitamin D, we, we hear it talked about as the sunshine vitamin, um, but it's not really a typical vitamin in the in the usual sort of definition. Can you give us a, just a bit of a refresher on vitamin D is and its health benefits? Yes, it's um, well, that's what's interesting about vitamin D. It's although we call it a vitamin, it's actually most of it is produced in the skin on exposure to the sun. So um, it's it's from the same precursor as cholesterol. So it's from those same kind of uh, steroidal like uh, molecules. And when there's UVB exposure onto the onto the skin, then it's converted into to vitamin D. And then it's important to note that it then also goes. It's the kidney is involved and other uh, tissues are involved throughout the body in terms of 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 making it into the active form of vitamin D. So it goes through a much more sort of complicated metabolic pathway than most vitamins that we think of that we that we need to get in our food and we absorb through the gut and the small intestine mostly um, and absorb and then utilize. So it's slightly different. And we do get some vitamin D in our foods and we can talk about that. Um, but yes, it's that sort of uh, dual, dual mechanism where we're either absorbing it from the gut or it's being produced in the skin that makes it kind of a, a really interesting vitamin to look at. And it's certainly got a lot of coverage both mainstream media um, as well as research in terms of um, its some of its functions. So how do we what do what does it do for us? 
Well, what's really interesting is when we look back, you know, even when I think when I first studied as a dietitian, we we almost exclusively talked about vitamin D as being absorbed in bone and dental health because vitamin D is essential for the absorption of minerals, including calcium and phosphorus that, you know, as we know, are really important for laying down in, in bone health. And, you know, traditionally, I grew up just south of Glasgow in Scotland and, and uh, you know, way back in, in the 20th century and, and before, there were huge problems with rickets. And that's that's the overt deficiency of vitamin D in children and infants causing these bone uh, deformities. So those sort of very typical bow legs that you see in these black and white pictures of, of children from places like Scotland and places where there isn't a lot of sunshine. Um, and that's the very sort of typical presentation in, in infants. And it remains important. So we know, so until much more recently, uh, really vitamin D was just talked about in relation to that sort of musculoskeletal mm. system. So even in adults, we see that if there's a deficiency of vitamin D, then you get this osteomalacia, so you get this, this um, weakening of the bones, and it can cause problems then throughout, throughout life. But what we understand now, and it's quite interesting if you start looking at some of the, I mean, there's vast amounts of vitamin D research, so it's really hard to get yourself across all of it. But what's interesting is that it's now recognized that vitamin D receptors are actually in tissues throughout the body, including in the brain, um, including in the respiratory system and, and cells all over the place, which shows us that vitamin D is doing all sorts of different functions. So although we still sort of, in, in mainstream land, we're still talking about it in relation to calcium absorption, phosphorus absorption, bone health, we actually now know it's involved in immune health, it's involved in brain health long term, um, it's involved in all of these other systems. There's, you know, cancer researchers are looking at vitamin D in relation to, to various forms of cancer and cancer development. So there's all sorts of really interesting stuff coming out. Um, and, and you know, a lot of that information may have slipped under the radar because we kind of had tunnel vision about what vitamin D's role is. Yeah, you're right. In my day as well, in training, it was all about bones. Um, yeah. And that's really the limit of it and possibly a bit of kidney function. You know, people had impaired kidney function. Yes. There were ramifications, but that, that was about it. And I guess... Most recently, in the last couple of years, its role in immune function has been highlighted with a lot of the research around COVID um, and long COVID and whether vitamin D has an impact in there. So what's the latest research on vitamin D and immunity? Well, that's, that's what, what has, has really come out um, fairly fairly resoundingly is that vitamin D is most certainly involved. And people who are deficient in vitamin D, even mildly deficient, have a much greater risk uh, of all sorts of respiratory conditions, including COVID. So, you know, if we're just talking typical coughs and flus and all the other sorts of things that come around. And so this is quite a timely conversation as we're moving, you know, back towards spring and then and towards winter with, uh, when we are at, at greater risk of, of these kinds of infections. So that's that's been a really interesting part. I think once we got through the early part of the pandemic, when it was when it was largely a medical kind of uh, response to to COVID, then there began interest. And actually, there's some papers. I think I presented some of those papers in some of our, our DC um, webinars early on, where researchers, even in China, in the very early stages of COVID, were actually publishing papers looking at, they were evaluating the nutritional status of patients coming into hospital and trying to identify why is it that some people seem to be able to get over COVID with relatively few symptoms, some completely asymptomatic, and then other people getting very, very serious disease. So right from the start of the pandemic, of course, that information's grown until, you know, everybody, I think, is well aware of, of um, all of the talk online from good sources and not so good sources mm -hmm. about the 
influence of vitamin D. Um, but there's absolutely no doubt that it is involved. So while it is not the only factor, as some sort of were claiming that all we need to do is give everyone a vitamin D supplement and the pandemic's gone away, well, no, of course that's not true. There's, it's a multifactorial disease. Immune function is a complicated business. Um, but there's no doubt that vitamin D is involved. So it's one of the nutrients that is absolutely key we know there's vitamin D receptors in the lungs and other cells throughout the respiratory system. So we're starting to understand more about what those influences are. So there's absolutely no doubt that ensuring um, that we have adequate vitamin D status, especially during the winter months when we tend to be indoors more, we're not in the sun as much. Um, and it being indoors, of course, makes you also more susceptible to picking up these infections because you're exposed to them rather than when we're in the outdoors. We've certainly learned that uh, through the COVID experience. So as dietitians, that's what we have to be aware of, is that even here in Australia, where, you know, you think it's sunny and even in the winter months, you might think that you're getting plenty of sunshine. In fact, the levels rise. So, so the research here in Australia has shown that in summer, about one in five of us, so it's about 20% of Australians have a vitamin D deficiency, but that rises to 36% in those winter months. So it's something that we really have to take seriously. And it's, as dietitians, it's, it's um, a really key deficiency for us to, to look at. So if in in the winter months um, are obviously more prone to it and probably in the summer months, I mean, our sun's smart messages have probably um, compromised our exposure to sunshine um, in terms of getting vitamin D. But as we, as you say, as we're moving into, into winter now and more people might be at risk, um, is that a usual pattern that we see, that sort of ebb and flow of, you said 20% in summer, but it rises to 36% mm. in winter? That a regular sort of occurrence? Is that what we would expect to see? It is. And in countries where, and it might be, you know, even greater levels, you know, the further you go to South, you go to Tassie or, or to, to New Zealand, you know, the levels are likely to be even higher. Certainly, you know, I can talk from, from Scottish data and from Scandinavian data and, and you know, Canada and other parts in the, in the north of the Northern Hemisphere, you know, they have insufficient sunlight for, you know, at least half the year. So sort of looking at that, so there's always sort of been a research focus on those kind of areas rather than countries like Australia. So I think that's what makes it so, um, I'm not sure shocking is the right word, but sort of really uh, surprising is to, uh, to, to recognise just that level of deficiency that we're not talking here about just elderly people who aren't getting out. Outside yeah, that was going to be my next question. Is it across all yeah. age groups? It's not just confined to an older it's population. across all age groups because we're covering up, because we're using, if you use a, a good sunscreen, you're using an SPF 50 plus sunscreen, that's blocking more than 90% of, of, of uh, vitamin D production in the skin. So if you're covering up, you're doing all the sun, you know, the sun advice. And of course that's important to reduce our risk of skin cancer. And even for, you know, for those of us, certainly I'm very aware of this, particularly on my face for, for anti-aging reasons mm. for your skin. You know, we're told to wear a hat, wear your sunscreen every day. And, and those messages of course are really important for skin health. But the downside of it is that we're sort of taking it so far that we're not getting the vitamin D um, production that we need. And it's worth noting that sometimes people say to me, oh, but I sit at a desk that the sun's coming in through the window or I'm in my car and I get sunshine. Actually, your your, your windows are blocking the particular rays um, that are important for vitamin D. So that's not sufficient. You've got to actually be outdoors. So, you know, there's, and, and it's, it's interesting when you look at researchers because researchers tend to be, in the area of vitamin D or they're in the area of skin health and skin cancer. Mm -hmm. 
And and so there's this sort of argy bargy between these two groups about what is safe sun exposure. And, you know, and, and arguably as dietitians we can step in with, and that's where there's an argument to say, well, let's include more vitamin D via our food and or with supplements where required. Um, but nevertheless, you know, I sort of try to take a pretty balanced view and think, okay, well, you know, we can we can try to avoid the, you know, between 11 and 3, between the peak sun exposure, mm. but particularly winter when we're more prone to vitamin D deficiency, perhaps we should be advising, look, get out into the sunshine, you know, cover your face by all means, but let your arms and legs be exposed if it's warm enough, of course, um, for only, you know, 20 minutes, 30 minutes max, so that you're getting the amount required for vitamin D, but without yeah. causing damage to the skin. So that that is an important message that we should be continuing, but obviously a lot of people uh, look outside in the colder, wetter months and going, oh, no, I'm not going out there right now. Thank you. It's dark, it's cold and it's wet. Um, yes. So in on top of suggesting that they do bite the bullet and try and get outside for a bit of time, how can we as dietitians, you mentioned, help people to maintain their vitamin D levels through the wintry months? Well, this is where food comes in. And, and you know, it's it's pretty easy advice because there aren't very many foods that provide vitamin D. So when we look at Australian data and, you know, I've been working with Australian eggs for a year or so now. And and um, the, the research is great for Australian eggs because this research very clearly shows that eggs are a key source of vitamin D. When we look at vitamin D and the diets of Australians, eggs are, are come out shining. So just as a serve of two eggs is providing 82% of what our recommended daily intake is, is for, for um, vitamin D or what an adequate intake is of vitamin D. So that's pretty phenomenal just from a serve of eggs. And it's worth noting in Australians, our, our dietitians need to know that you know, even the Heart Foundation now has changed their advice around eggs that, that they have now said healthy people can consume as many eggs as they like. So when we look at the vitamin D research specifically, we see that in people who are consuming at least seven eggs a week. So I sort of like to I say to people, try and consume an egg a day or consume your serving of two eggs every second day, every other day. So it's kind of nice to advise people to mm. perhaps alternate, you know, an oat, fruit, nut-based kind of breakfast with an egg-based breakfast, the based breakfast breakfast the next day. And that's quite a nice way to think of it. And if you get your minimum of seven eggs in your week, then you are you know, significantly less likely to get that drop in vitamin D over those winter months. So that's just showing us that it's an efficient way of getting that extra vitamin D in your diet. So yeah, so eggs stand out as one of the best sources. And this is again where you know I do find myself being the dietitian defending animal foods a lot at the moment. Yeah. Because it's other oily fish, so things like salmon and trout and, and other oily fish, remembering that vitamin D is, is fat soluble. So in the egg, it's in the egg yolk. Um, in oily fish, rather than white fish or lower fat fish, you're going to get some vitamin D. Um, and and um, and those sources are, there's some research suggesting that the form of vitamin D, so it's vitamin D3 in those animal sources, is better absorbed and utilized than the vitamin D2, which you will get in some plant foods, you know, mostly mushrooms that have been exposed to the sun. But nevertheless, that is still a, a significant source of, of vitamin D. So that's also worth dietitians taking note of, that if you've got, and we've got this plant-based kind of trend at the moment, there's more people being interested in following either higher, you know, more plant foods and less animal foods or are going completely 100% plant-based. And they are more at risk of vitamin D deficiency. Yeah. So that's often the people then who are also limiting sun exposure, doing other things that may be, um, you know, limiting their ability to, to meet their vitamin D needs. 
So there's a little red flag first off if you're thinking vitamin D and you're looking at someone for the nutritional adequacy, but if they're vegan or strict vegetarian, plant-based, then have a closer look at um, vitamin D. So can you just talk us through uh, sort of the the issue of supplementation with vitamin D because that might often be a, a first stop for someone who isn't seeing a dietitian or is just doing their own research. They might go yeah. for supplements. So where do supplements fit into um, the whole vitamin D deficiency area? Well, supplements definitely play a role. There's no doubt about it. And if somebody, you know, has had actually had a blood test, um, although I will point out that there is some research emerging to suggest that the current method of of, of measuring vitamin D in blood uh, may not be the the best way of measuring vitamin D sufficiency. So it may actually be missing some people. But if we park that for the second, because at the moment all we can do is utilize the blood tests that are available, but it's just worth keeping our eye on that to understand if there are better tests coming out there or what might not be, you know, what might be getting missed in, in a particular blood test. But the moment certainly we can get people to see their GP and get a blood test and have their vitamin D levels um, measured. So if they are very, very low, um, I would I would certainly be recommending a supplement to really help them to pick their pick themselves up and to get amounts stored um, and, and to get their levels back up to where they need to be. But at the end of the day, supplements can also be expensive and people have to, you know, they want to know which ones to buy. And, you know, so, so there's no doubt that there's benefits of foods over supplements because not only, of course, do they get vitamin D, but they get other nutrients, you know, there's some 13 or so essential vitamins and minerals and, and eggs is just one food example. You know, oily fish contains other nutrients and other healthy fats and, and other things that might be beneficial for all sorts of areas of health. So, you know, I always like to use, if I'm using supplements to me, the word just says what it is, it's supplemental to diet. So as dietitians, it's really crucial that we think about diet first and foremost, and we use supplements as the extras in there. And then the last thing to say about food versus supplements other than cost is one, the supplement can be in various forms. So it's worth looking at what's the form of vitamin D in the supplement. But secondly, toxicity is a risk. So people have to be very careful to make sure that they're following the correct dose. There are concerns with, it's, it's highly unlikely if they're following the correct dose that they, they would become, um, they would reach toxic levels. But if they start following some of the advice, I get very concerned when there's a number of podcasts I've listened to, for example, from um, experts, mostly over in the US, um, who are not necessarily experts in the fields of even nutrition, never mind vitamin D, but they're scientists in other areas. And they talk about these protocols they like to follow for health and for longevity. And many of them are taking exceptionally high levels of vitamin D. So the vitamin D researchers say there's a risk of toxicity taking more than 4,000 international units a day. And some of these researchers, I've heard them saying that they're taking up to 10,000 international units a day, which clearly is, is not what we need to be advising for patients. And it's not paying attention to the actual research. It's doing very experimental doses. Now, you know, we store vitamin D in, in the body. It's stored in fat in particular. So people who are carrying too much excess body fat are actually at lower risk of having, or, sorry, are at higher risk of having low blood levels of vitamin D because the vitamin D oh, is okay. into fat. 
So, you know, they may need um, higher doses of supplements. There's no doubt that there's probably a range of doses that we need. But if you're going to have people on higher levels, then I would argue that for safety concerns, you would want to be monitoring blood levels to check that you're not allowing them to get blood levels being excessively high, which can lead to all sorts of problems, including heart problems and kidney problems and anorexia and impacts on appetite and so on. So, you know, I think it's really important that we do no harm. And if, and as soon as you recommend a supplement for anything, you've got that potential for risk as well as, as, as for um, benefit. So if someone is, you know, they had a vitamin D blood test that was found to be low, um, they started taking uh, supplementary vitamin D to, to get that back up, um, mm-hmm. and let's say it was in winter, then potentially once they get their vitamin D levels back up, if they can implement safe sun exposure and attend to their diet, then the supplementation should potentially only be required for that period of time. And once you get those levels back up, hopefully you can maintain them through diet and sun exposure. Is that right? Exactly, yes. And the the only um, caveats to that would be people who have, uh, you know, some gut disorder, some sort of main some sort of disorder that means that they require much higher levels of vitamin D over longer over the long stretch. So someone who has inflammatory bowel disease, for example, or who's had gastric bypass surgery and may have lost, you know, some of the upper part of the intestine. Anyone who's had that intestinal surgery, if they've got Crohn's disease, for example, and they've had intestinal resections that might impair then their absorption of vitamin D from foods. Um, there are some particular blood disorders or if people have got liver, kidney, you know, even some heart problems and things can influence their metabolism of vitamin D in the body. So these are things that require some medical supervision too. And that's where regular blood testing uh, may be necessary in order to monitor what's happening with blood levels of vitamin D. So there are always some exceptions and there may be some people Mm. that would benefit from long-term supplement use. But yes, for most healthy people, um, perhaps considering a supplement through winter, but if you have, you know, if, if you're, if you're, um, actually eating really well and you're including vitamin D rich foods, some of the vitamin D that you've stored through the summer when you do some more sun exposure will carry you through part of winter. Um, but those people who are at higher risk or you know, certainly up your intake of food. And that's why this research is so nice showing you can prevent that drop in your blood and your vitamin D just by eating you know, your, your eggs every week, seven or so eggs a week, um, then that's an easy way for us to do it. And, and yes, for some people, certainly I advise my family, my elderly parents back in the, in the in Scotland, they live in the north of Scotland, certainly I advise them through the winter months to take a supplement. Um, so yes, using yeah. a first approach with the supplements to fill in those gaps where we think they need it would, would be my dietetic advice. So would you say for dietitians uh, who are seeing clients for a whole range of reasons, they're not necessarily going to be referred because of a vitamin D deficiency or because of suboptimal vitamin D. So I guess it's it requires dietitians to just be on the watch out for it and keep it in their minds that they should be assessing diet, not just for the vitamins and minerals, the, the usual sort of macronutrients, but also should be just having a little bit of a scan of their client's diets for vitamin D, um, particularly in the winter months, but being aware of that because, as I said, it's not really going to be the reason for referral. 
Absolutely, you're you're spot on because I think well, one, not everyone's seen their GP. Some people are coming to see privately a dietitian, or they've you know sought a referral on their own. Some are referred from doctors, but it's rarely simply for vitamin D deficiency. I think most doctors would just be prescribing a supplement um, and sending them on their way. So unless you're a dietitian who's working very closely uh, with the GP or medical practice in some way, it, I, I very much doubt whether there's a referral simply for vitamin D. What you might get or doctors referring for some other reason for diabetes management yes. or weight management or whatever it might be um, who then also give the blood results I mean I and and they are doctors are increasingly when they do a regular blood screen vitamin D is usually now included in that standard blood screen so you know certainly um, I don't tend to see one-on-ones but every now and again for whatever reason I, I, I always ask someone to, to send me their blood results because it's really useful to get that and I think as dietitians um it's, it's good practice for us to start really understanding how to look at a full blood set of blood results because you just never know what's going to get picked up. And you might be sent it from their GP because of cholesterol management, for example. But rather than just looking at their cholesterol profiles, it's well worthwhile looking through the whole blood report to see if you can get a bigger picture. And usually something like vitamin D, sometimes other things like vitamin B12 or other nutrients might be in there. And sometimes that gives you a picture of what's happening with that person's diet you know is it uh, you know are they following a very restricted diet and therefore you might it's pretty unusual for us as dietitians to get someone who's only got one nutrient deficiency yes. usually they've got one they've, they've normally got others so you know that's where a blood test can be really useful and i'm you know as a scientist i'm always i'm always keen on having some method of tracking and some method of looking at at you know tangible figures and ways of analyzing and the more tools that we've got at our disposal then the better and it can make us better at our jobs. So, yeah, so I think, you know, starting to, but if you've got a patient who's come to you fresh, not as a referral from a GP, they might be coming to you for, you know, numerous other reasons. It is well worth actually having in your mind as you're analyzing their diet and you're doing your diet history and your food record and so on, however it is that you're analyzing them. Keep vitamin D in the back of your mind and think, is this person getting enough vitamin D? Talk to them about whether they're exposing their sun, their their skin rather to the sun. Talk to them about what sorts of foods. Ask them about oily fish and eggs and whether they eat mushrooms and so on, so that you can glean some idea. Ask them about gut problems. Lots of dietitians now are working in that gut health space. If you've got someone who's got really severe gut problems, then you should be thinking outside the box. That start mm. thinking about what's their absorption of all sorts of different nutrients and how are you going to tackle that um, from a holistic dietary perspective. And I suppose just like we uh, include exercise as part of our overall assessment of a patient, sun exposure is part of that. You can't really get a good assessment of vitamin D unless you do ask about sun exposure generally. But the other thing I was wondering is, do you have a, a really a simple way of explaining to uh, if dietitians are talking to their patients about why vitamin D is important and why they're focusing on it if they decide that someone's mm-hmm. not getting enough? You know, what's the simple way of just explaining why vitamin D is so important to them. 
Well, I just think that would be explaining is really important for your for your muscular system and and the, and your strength and your capacity for your muscles to work for your bone health for your tooth health um, that you can't simply be taking calcium you know drinking milk is not sufficient for your bone health that you need to be you need vitamin D to make these things work and then talk to them about the benefits I mean I think really what could be really nice is pulling those lifestyle factors together with their diet so for example you know getting up in the morning and getting out into the early morning sunshine in a singlet so you've got and shorts perhaps and you've got sunshine on your arms and legs you're in that early morning sun so you're reducing the risk of any sun damage but you're getting the right rays onto your skin to start producing um, some vitamin d at the same time as getting sunlight into your eyes that's what sets your circadian rhythms for the day that can help you with sleep later when it comes to going to bed that yeah. night um, and you're getting your exercise in then come home and have you know an egg-based breakfast you're getting some dietary vitamin d there too along with a whole bunch of other nutrients that are really really important um, and eggs are great because you know a lot of people you know it's a very small percentage who are actually becoming vegans you know but there's a mm. large percentage of people who are having more so it's it's happily a food that most people are happy to include even if they're wanting to be more plant-based and be more vegetarian then it's an easy food to get in and the last factor i think that's in my mind here is being amassed a lot at the moment i've just done a number of corporate videos where i'm always being asked about budget and eating healthily yes. a budget because people's mortgages are going up and we've all got this stress whether and if you don't have a mortgage we've still got the rising costs of Pretty much everything. Yeah, electricity, yeah. gas, yeah. So, you know, for me, for me, it's a really nice thing to be able to say, look, eggs are an affordable food and they're so nutritious. And as, as dietitians, we've got to keep correcting myths because there's still an awful lot of people who think, oh, but I've got high cholesterol. Does that mean I shouldn't eat eggs? And we've got to correct them with the most up to date and help them to understand why that line of thinking has changed and why we now understand that actually... Yes. The recent research looking specific at specific foods is teaching us to do more than, you know, just look at dietary cholesterol or just look at even saturated fat. And most of the fat present in an egg is, is healthy, unsaturated fats, and that the cholesterol content in the egg yolk is not going to raise their blood cholesterol levels and helping them to understand that so that they feel comfortable then understanding that these are a nutritious, affordable food that they can have seven or more eggs a week um and and that's a great way of boosting our family nutrition uh, without it costing the earth you know because i think we've still got i get this all the time from people and i'm sure the dietitians listening will 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 feel the same that people think it's expensive to eat healthily and that they can't afford it and we've really got to help them to understand exactly how to do it in a budget-friendly way yes and so You've given us, that's a really nice sort of um, summation of interrelating all of those recommendations, the exercise side of it, circadian, the sun exposure, the healthy diet, which all yeah. I think makes sense, which is what we want to do to our clients. We don't want to make it overcomplicated. Um, and so that, that that's a really good summary. But so in coming to the end of this podcast um, in the unlikely event that someone might have skipped through and just hearing this part of the, <laughs> the recording. Um, can you give us like your, your sort of three top tips for dietitians um, to encourage their patients to get enough vitamin D? What would be your take-home messages for them? Well, definitely not seven eggs a week. That's an easy one. You know, I, I, I like to use the have eggs for breakfast every other day because most of the time we're having two eggs, um, you know, sometimes three. I make my omelette mm. with three eggs. 
Um, but having that minimum of seven eggs a week is a really good starting point. Include oily fish. And I always include that one because then not only are they getting some vitamin D there, but they're getting their, their omega-3s. Be aware of sustainable seafood guidance there as to which oily fish are the best ones for you to consume. And then if you can get outdoors at non-peak hours, you know, particularly in winter when, when the UV index is lower, you know, get out and actually try to get some sun, sun exposure is really going to help you. And then not and then that early morning walk is so perfect because of that circadian rhythms, you know, getting light early in the day, um, you know, getting some sunshine at the at the, the, the safest time for those rays to be on your skin, getting your exercise and weight-bearing exercise is also important for your bone health. So it kind of ticks so many different boxes. I think that's a really nice way um, to do it. And then, sorry, I've done more than three. You said three. <laughs> to, to use supplements where you know, where necessary, where you really require that sort of extra large dose to either get people back to where they are or because they do have problems, you know, with with pretty severe inflammatory bowel disease or they're very overweight um, or they're elderly and stuck indoors and they, for whatever reason, can't yeah. get out. Or perhaps you're dealing with because of their religion, you know, women who cover up because of their religion, you know, those sorts of, of situations where you just know some exposure is not going to happen or someone very at risk. You know, one of the dietitians I used to work with actually, you know, lost both her parents to melanoma. So she, of mm. course, and her family are very, very careful about some exposure. So in those sorts of situations, we've got to look to food and supplements. Yeah. And we have those available to us. So we're fortunate that we exactly. have those options. I just have one final question in terms of vitamin D content of eggs. Is it in the yolk or the white? Vitamin D is in the yolk. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm just thinking about the people soil. that go with the egg white, um, you know, omelets. Yes. And um, actually, can I share something that even I did not know until relatively recently, that actually even when it comes to protein, because they used to do, you know, the bodybuilders all used to do the yes. egg white omelet thing. Um, and I've still got a cafe. I see it, you know, heart healthy egg white omelet. Um, and they did it because they thought they were getting all the protein. So even in terms of there's protein in the yolk, you know, about 40% of the protein in an egg is in the yolk. Mm. So even that idea that I just want the protein and nothing else. So just remember that, you know, there are other, the, the, the white is not just protein. It does have some nutrients, but the bulk of the nutrients, including vitamin D, are in the yolk. So please eat the whole, yolk, the whole egg yeah. um, in order to get the full nutrition. Very good. All right, look, thank you once again for your time today, Joe. Really nice summary of it. Um, and I think that'll be really helpful for all of our dietitians who are listening to us. And we will add a link to um, the Australian Eggs Healthcare Professional Resources in our show notes. So you can go there. And a final thank you to Australian Eggs for supporting today's podcast. So thanks very much for your time, Joe. Brilliant. Thanks, Jane. Bye. Thanks for listening. To get all of the links and resources we discussed in this episode, you can go to dietitianconnection.com slash podcasts. And if you'd like to support the Dietitian Connection podcast, please leave a review and a rating on the Apple Podcasts app. Tell us what you thought of this episode, what you learnt, and share your guest requests for us to consider for future episodes. We value hearing from you and we really appreciate your feedback. So please, please hit that review button.